The reality is that there's still no certainty that there's really a distinction between the two. There are neurologists who think that PLS is just one end of the ALS spectrum, and there are arguments against that as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. This week, we are focusing our attention on primary lateral sclerosis, a rare motor neuron disease that can look an awful lot like ALS, but which also has some key differentiators. To get a deeper understanding of the unique challenges to diagnosing PLS and living with PLS, we turn to Dr. David Walk, a practicing neurologist and a professor of neurology at the University of Minnesota. Well, Dr. Walk, thank you so much for being with us this week and, and sharing your time and, and perspective. Yeah, my pleasure. So yeah, so you're the perfect guest to have on this week. Uh, one of the things we want to do is talk a little bit about primary lateral sclerosis, what it is, what it has in common with ALS, how it differs. Um, but let's just start at that basic, what is it question? Um, can you talk us through primary lateral sclerosis, what it is? Yep, you bet. So I'm going to do that by going back to ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, which is kind of the anchor that we're all familiar with. So ALS, as folks know, is also called motor neuron disease. It's a disorder of a particular type of nerve cells that's responsible for muscle function, and those are called motor neurons. And there are two types. There are motor neurons on the surface of the brain, and those are called upper motor neurons. And there are lower motor neurons, which are at the base of the brain and down through the spinal cord. And Problems uh, with upper motor neurons lead to a certain type of stiffness and clumsiness, and problems with lower motor neurons lead to muscle weakness and muscle atrophy. And so amyotrophic lateral sclerosis uh, is a term that comes from the muscle atrophy and weakness, that's the amyotrophic part, and the lateral sclerosis in an indirect way refers to the upper motor neuron problem in which people develop stiffness and clumsiness. So it's upper and lower motor neurons. In primary lateral sclerosis, there's none of the amyotrophic part. There are no lower motor neuron problems to speak of. So the, the principal problem uh, in primary lateral sclerosis is the stiffness and clumsiness that happens with the upper motor neuron part. And in primary lateral sclerosis, in fact, uh, the problem seems to be solely in those upper motor neurons on the surface of the brain. So people develop gradually progressive uh, stiffness, often starting with walking, but occasionally with speech or in other areas of the body that spreads to other areas uh, over a matter of years, but with far less of the weakness or loss of muscles that you see in ALS. So uh, given some of the overlap, some of the, it sounds like similarities in onset, walk us through the diagnosis process. Right. So, you know, the diagnostic process in ALS uh, is identification of evidence of lower motor neuron problems. Again, weakness, muscle atrophy, and an EMG that fits with that and supports that. And upper motor neuron problems, the stiffness and clumsiness and abnormal reflexes. So the EMG becomes sort of the central piece of this because um, a person with primary lateral sclerosis will develop things that look very similar to ALS. But when uh, the muscles are tested directly, either on examination or on EMG, the test with the needles, we find little or no evidence of weakness or abnormal connections between the nerve and muscle cells. So essentially, it's sort of, it's very much like diagnosing ALS, 
except that one does not find any of the any evidence of lower motor neuron dysfunction. Now, the corollary there, of course, is that you know people living with ALS are probably familiar with the fact that one can have a lot of the upper motor neuron component, so a lot of stiffness and clumsiness and relatively little muscle weakness. And others can have a lot of the lower motor neuron problem in ALS, which was the muscle weakness, muscle atrophy, but relatively good dexterity, normal reflexes, muscles aren't stiff or spastic. So there's a range in terms of the way ALS can affect any given individual. So one can imagine that at that upper motor neuron predominant end of the ALS range, it's difficult to differentiate that from PLS. So again, one could have ALS looking very much like PLS. And in fact, the diagnosis of PLS is generally not fully established until after several years of observation to be sure that the lower motor neuron part is not developing. And that's one of the great difficulties. And I know a lot of people have been put in the uncomfortable position of being told, well, we think you have PLS, but we're not sure yet. And the reason for that is typically, if a person does have ALS that's upper motor neuron predominant, the lower motor neuron part will become evident within the first several years. So I know it's a little confusing, but we don't have a great way of guaranteeing the differentiation in those circumstances. And the number of years varies. Uh, the criteria had previously been three years. The most recent set of diagnostic criteria say you have to wait four years to be confident that a person has PLS and not upper motor neuron predominant ALS. And there are some who argue that there are people who develop lower motor neuron signs many years even after that. As a practical matter, and stay with me because I know this is getting pretty wheezy, but as a practical matter, it is the case that people in whom we make a diagnosis of ALS who have very, very little lower motor neuron involvement, so people with ALS whose condition looks a lot like PLS, tend to have a disease course that starts to approximate PLS. And the reality is that there's still no certainty that there's really a distinction between the two. In other words, there are neurologists who think that PLS is just one end of the ALS spectrum, and there are arguments against that as well. I hope that wasn't too confusing. No, well, it, you know, it's it's not a it's not a simple um, it's not a simple question to answer, and it's a bit of a bear to wrestle. What are the practical implications of that debate you referenced of, is it one end of the spectrum or is it a distinct animal? What are the ramifications for a patient uh, in terms of how we determine, how we characterize this, how we define this? Right. So that's a tremendously important question. So for example, one, one of the practical consequences is that there are two medications FDA approved to slow progression of ALS, but not PLS. And there's a, uh, there really is not adequate research on how to treat PLS. So if I say to somebody, gosh, um, I think this is PLS. There's only one muscle that's mildly abnormal on your EMG, and that's not enough to call it ALS. Then the consequence of that statement is that in theory, I shouldn't be using, you know, Goyuzol or Aderivan because they haven't been tested in PLS. If six months later that individual has a 
abnormalities on their EMG in four or five muscles, I say, gosh, this looks like it's developing into upper motor neuron predominant ALS, and now you're a candidate for those medications. Now, you know, we don't have enough information about subsets of ALS as to who responds better to, to certain things than, the, than others. But that's one practical implication of the difference. It might be the same person with the same disease and a slightly different test result, but the treatments in terms of medications we can offer them, or at least that we're authorized to author them that have been studied, differ. Another very important implication in the U.S. is that the Veterans Administration provides tremendous support to people living with ALS. So if the diagnosis is PLS and they're a veteran, that support may not be available. That's a very practical, not mm. a biological difference, but it's, a, it's super important. Um, you know, and in participation in clinical trials naturally becomes an issue. In terms of the practical management of the person's condition, an individual with upper motor neuron predominant ALS might receive very much the same management as a person with PLS except to the extent, again, that they may have developed more weakness and need more help with those particular muscles that are weak. There's one other very important distinction in terms of the groups as groups, not as individuals. And that is that because ALS causes substantial muscle weakness, even people with upper motor neuron predominant ALS do ultimately develop uh, very serious difficulty with breathing and require ventilatory assistance, and for those who choose not to undergo tracheostomy or continuous ventilatory assistance, ALS is a life-limiting or life-shortening disease. PLS is quite disabling over time and causes frailty, which itself, of course, limits quality of life and can increase the risk of fatal conditions related to immobility. But Strictly speaking, it's not considered a cause of ventilatory failure. So as groups, they're quite different in terms of the prognosis for survival. But again, when we're speaking of individuals, people with upper motor neuron predominant ALS, again, a lot of stiffness, a lot of loss of dexterity, but relatively little weakness, particularly if that weakness is principally in hands or feet, areas far from the respiratory muscles those individuals tend to have a longer survival than other people living with ALS. So those are a few of the important differences as I see it. You mentioned uh, access to clinical trials and access to uh, approved medication. I want to dig into that a little bit. So you talked earlier about this period of uncertainty where we, we have to wait a couple of years to determine, can we definitively diagnose PLS? Do we have enough evidence to, to make that determination? Have there been efforts to, or, or I guess, what, what access does that person have to participate in clinical trials during that waiting period, knowing that time is of the essence in terms of when folks can and cannot be considered candidates for clinical trials. So I'm going to answer that starting from the back end, because there have been clinical trials of medications in PLS, precious few. And I should add that there are different types of clinical trials, right? There are medications or treatments, I should say, that are principally designed to improve function and safety. And there are interventions that are principally designed to slow, stop, or reverse a disease process, right? Right. So PLS has many of the kind of functional problems that we see in 
other conditions like spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, certain brain diseases. And there are treatments to improve function. And it's relatively straightforward to either design a clinical trial of something that one might think would help in that regard, or to simply trial a treatment in an individual and see if it helps them. With regard to designing interventions that that are intended to slow, stop, or reverse the disease process itself, that's much trickier for several reasons. The first reason is that one needs to have a sense as to what, how to define slowing or stopping. And to be able to do that, one needs to know more about how quickly the disease progresses and how to measure that progression. And here, the shout out goes to Dr. Mitsumoto at Columbia University, who has led an effort to design a functional rating scale specific to PLS and demonstrated that even a six-month trial, despite the fact that it's a slowly progressive disease by comparison, even a six-month trial of a potential treatment might be able to show benefit if it was a a highly effective treatment. So first, you have to kind of decide how are we going to measure progression before we test something and see if it helps. And then you have to get a sense as to how quickly it progresses. So he has also started a PLS natural history project designed to learn more about how this disease progresses. And so anybody living with PLS who is hearing this, I would encourage them to go to clinicaltrials.gov or call Columbia and see if you have the opportunity to participate. Many people might not because of the criteria. But the point is, it's very hard to really judge a treatment unless it's extraordinarily beneficial. It's hard to judge a treatment that's only modestly beneficial unless you have a way of measuring change over time and know what the normal degree of change should be. So those are some of the first steps that have to be done and that, that are being worked on. Another hurdle or barrier with PLS is that it's a rare variant of a rare disease. It's sufficiently uncommon that in order to do any kind of useful studies, one one needs to gather clinicians from many, many sites so that one has enough participating individuals to be able to measure any change. Uh, And so that makes it a little harder to, to kind of do an initial study of a potential treatment than say, you know, diabetes. So those are some of the barriers I think that have existed in terms of understanding how to do clinical trials in PLS. I guess I should add that there, you know, one always has to be careful that the diagnosis is correct as well. There are a few other things there. But Dr. Mitsumoto, for example, to directly answer your question, has chosen to include people with two years of symptoms rather than the four years, which is the current kind of cutoff for a confident diagnosis. And the point is, let's look at everybody who looks like they have PLS, but you don't want to wait those four years to start studying. And I think ultimately, we're either going to need something that clearly proves whether something's ALS or PLS early on, or clinical trials in PLS may include people with upper motor neuron predominant ALS and just kind of have an operational definition of who can try the the potential treatment so that we can enroll folks earlier in the disease, recognizing that there may or may not be an important difference, a biologically important difference amongst those individuals. Well, Dr. Walk, a lot of fascinating uh, information here. Uh, I certainly learned a lot and I think audience members will as well. So thanks again for your time this week. Great. Thank you so much. I want to thank our guest this week, Dr. David Walk. If you like this week's episode, tell a friend to subscribe to the show. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, 
please find time to rate and review the show. It's a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon.